This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 4, Making Sense of Old Testament Prophecies. This is the last of our introductory lectures for this course, and we recall that in the first lecture we spoke of an historical perspective on the prophets, then the second lecture a literary perspective, the third some thematic considerations, and now what we want to do is sort of take an overarching look at the hermeneutic or the process of interpretation that we will use in understanding the prophets. The first thing we need to do is, Roman number one, try to understand the prophets in their Old Testament context. Letter A, the basic idea. Figure 1.4 tells us what we're working for in this class. It is how do we make sense of Old Testament prophecies when we take into account the literary, historical, and thematic considerations that we've already outlined. And as we walk through these, how is it that we can make sense of them for their own time and for our own time? And the answer first is to look at the original setting. So figure 4.2 tells us that we have to understand Old Testament prophecies in terms of the original writer or final compiler of the book, the original document, and the original audience. I'm afraid that in the case of prophecy, as in most parts of the Bible, we do not, as evangelicals, concentrate enough on the original meaning of Old Testament texts we must be very concerned as we work with these materials to begin our interest, our interpretation in these, of these passages with the original setting. What, for instance, did the compiler of the book of Amos say through his book to his audience? What did Isaiah say through his book to his audience? What did Daniel say through his book to his audience? Today, people want to jump quickly from the book straight to contemporary application but this will be misleading and will get us into some serious troubles. So let's try to understand how the Old Testament context of a prophecy worked. This brings us to Roman numeral 1b. We're asking some significant questions here in this figure 4.3. If we are going to look at Old Testament prophecies in terms of the original writer and audience, then a particular question comes to mind, and that is, how much did, this, did these writers and audiences understand? One viewpoint that people take on this is that the words of prophets were not understood by the writers. Now you can see the references I give at the top of figure 4.3 because these are some of the references that people use to refer to the idea or to support the idea that the writer of a prophecy did not understand his prophecy. And the idea is that the content of meaning for the prophetic word could be found only in the fulfillment. It was something that the Old Testament prophet and the audience could not have known. You can think of these verses in many respects in this view as an empty canister that did not really have any meaning originally, but could only be understood once the fulfillment took place. Oh, examples are given, they're, they're multiplied over and over. For example, Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, From Egypt did I call my son. Well, most 
or many evangelicals take the point of view that when Matthew says that this is referring to Jesus and his trip from Egypt back to Nazareth, that this is a, a reference or a sort of filling up of this empty verse, this verse that had really no original meaning, and that the prophets had no sense that this is what the prophecy really meant. And so this would be one approach that people often take to Old Testament prophecy, and that is to say that the original writer and audiences didn't understand what they were talking about. There's another point of view that um, has now begun to grow in popularity among evangelicals, figure 4.4. This brings us to Roman numeral 1c. This idea is that the writer and audience did understand the words of their prophecies, and that the only thing that they wondered about was the timing Walter Kaiser has a nice discussion of the passage of 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, which is often used to say that the prophets didn't understand anything about their prophecies. And he argues rather plainly, and I think convincingly, that what Peter is saying is, is that the prophets didn't understand when. They didn't understand the timing of their prophecies. And so you'll find passages like Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, this famous passage about the suffering servant, and the fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 8, 32 through 35, the fulfillment in Jesus and the New Testament's use of this passage, as, and people will act as if the original writer, Isaiah, of this passage uh, understood completely what, or at least to a large extent, what the New Testament thought this passage meant. And uh, another example would be Amos chapter 9, verses 12, 11 and 12, where it talks about the house of David being built up again. And Acts 15, where James, use, James uses this to refer to the Christian church and the inclusion of the Gentiles within the church. And people often will say that because the New Testament says this, then that this had to be in the mind of Amos or in the mind of the original prophet as he spoke the words of his prophecy if not exactly what the New Testament says, then something very close to it. This brings us then to Roman numeral 1, letter D, my view, and that is that the prophets in one sense understood, but in another sense did not understand. Figure 4.5 illustrates this idea. There is a sense in which we'd have to say, I believe, in light of the doctrine of organic inspiration, that God works through the personalities and the thought processes of his inspired writers, that we'd have to say they understood at least partially what they were writing about and what they were prophesying about. The ba they understood the basic ideas and the central motifs, but they didn't understand in the sense that they had limitations. We all have limitations on understanding what we say or what we write. There's a sense in which um, we need to all recognize that we may not understand what we write down on a piece of paper quite as much as we think we do. They also didn't understand many times because as they heard things, there were gaps, historical gaps in their texts, in their words. There were also ambiguities in their words. And there were implicit dimensions of their words, their prophecies, that were not altogether clear. So in this sense, they did not understand fully what they had said. But we also have to remember this, that Old Testament prophets did not, for the most part, understand things like the historical contingencies that would follow after them that might affect the fulfillments of their prophecies. Do you remember in the previous lecture we said that because of the imminence of God, his interaction with creatures, that many times a prophecy would be given and then something would take place that would alter the way the prophecy was going to be fulfilled. Amos 9, for example, 
and its fulfillment in Acts 15 is a good example of this. It's the sort of thing where Amos could not have anticipated that the church would come in the form that it did and that Gentiles would be added to the church and that this would be the way in which restored Israel would conquer the nations of the earth, which is what Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 say Israel will do. Um, so there's one sense then in which the historical contingencies following a prophecy could not have been known by a prophet and therefore he didn't understand. But beyond this, prophets also could not anticipate how future generations might legitimately apply their words to new circumstances. I think of myself as a speaker and as a writer that many times people come up to me and thank me for, for how much my words meant to them and I'm often surprised to find out that what they got out of my talking or my writing I didn't put into it. Uh, in other words, I didn't intend it. I didn't, there was no way that I could have anticipated that someone might use it that way. Nevertheless, as they say these words to me, I look back or I think back on what I have said or written and I say to myself, well, yes, that's true. I, that's good. I meant to say that. It just wasn't conscious. I just wasn't fully aware of it. And I think the same kind of sense could be said or the same kind of approach could be taken toward Old Testament prophets. In, for instance, Hosea 11.1, from Egypt did I call my son? Hosea did not have in mind the Messiah coming to earth and having to run to Egypt and then coming back to the land of Canaan. That's not what he had in mind. He was not predicting anything at all, in fact. In Hosea 11.1, he's giving a historical reflection on what God had already done in his day for Israel when he brought Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. But Matthew uses this as a type, as a picture, as a foreshadowing of the redemption that was to come in Christ. And of course, Hosea would have agreed that the Exodus event, that is Israel moving from Egypt to the Promised Land, was a foreshadowing of the great redemption that would come at the end of time through the great Messiah. But he did not probably sit and think to himself, well, one day somebody will use my verse this way. But that's exactly what Matthew did in Matthew 2, verse 15. So the first thing we must do as we begin to work toward under making sense of Old Testament prophecies is to try to understand how Old Testament prophets themselves understood and yet did not understand fully what they were writing. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2, understanding the New Testament context. Figure 4.6 gives us a sense in which there is this original meaning of the Old Testament prophecy and the question that we're asking is how did New Testament writers um, relate their understanding to the original meaning? That is, how did they relate their understandings to what the original prophet meant as he spoke and wrote for his audiences? Did New Testament writers employ grammatical historical exegesis to the prophets? I think we're going to discover there's a sense in which they did and a sense perhaps in which they did not. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2b. One extreme that people often take toward this question of how the New Testament interpretations of prophecies relate to the Old Testament original meaning is to take the attitude that the New Testament is completely free from the original meaning. And that's what I'm trying to illustrate in figure 4.7 where the idea is this. You have the original meaning of a prophecy, looking at it in terms of the writer and his audience, but the New Testament often is viewed this way, as a sort of supernatural, esoteric, almost Gnostic interpretation of these 
um, Old Testament prophecies, that they are free, that New Testament writers were free from the original meaning to say whatever they wanted to say as they were led, quote-unquote, by the Holy Spirit to speak and to write about Old Testament prophecies. In this sense, there's no genuine integrity between the original meaning and the New Testament interpretation of the text, that the New Testament interpretation must simply be taken by faith, despite the fact that they, in, they actually misrepresent the original meaning. Now, I am not convinced of this view. In fact, I think this is a very dangerous view because I believe that the New Testament writers believed in the uh, doctrine of organic inspiration, that they believed that when Isaiah spoke, Isaiah understood to some degree what he was saying. And I think they also believed that any interpretation that they made of any Old Testament prophecy was in accord with the original meaning of those prophecies. But we'll take a look and see how this is the case. For example, when uh, Hosea 11.1 1 is used by Matthew, there are many people who will readily admit that Hosea 11.1 1 is not talking about Jesus going down to Egypt, but then Matthew can use it this way, they say, because Matthew is free. He has apostolic authority, is often the word that's used, to sort of make up or to bring out a supernatural secret meaning in these passages. And I think that's a very dangerous position to hold. It's the kind of position that, that keeps us from being able to explore Old Testament prophecy. As I've already suggested in this lecture, we need to begin with looking at the Old Testament context of Old Testament prophecies, how were they originally meant, and then to build on that original meaning. To say that the New Testament discounts that original meaning would be to make a mysterious mistake. This brings us to Roman numeral 2c. There are other people, other evangelicals, well-meaning, who will take the attitude that the New Testament was bound to the original meaning. That is to say that the New Testament could not say anything beyond what the original meaning of a text was. And the way this goes is often like this. As it, for the example, the um, example in figure 4.8, Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 35, when Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is using Psalm 16, people had the attitude, well, since Peter says that Psalm 16 is talking di about Jesus, then it can't be talking about anything else. And so that the New Testament writers locked in on the original meaning and simply clarified things. But I think the reality is, is that New Testament writers did not simply repeat the original meaning of Old Testament stories, Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament poems in this case. Instead, they looked at the original meaning with new eyes or through a lens, and that lens, of course, was the coming of Jesus. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2, letter D, elaborations on original meaning. From my point of view, it's best to look at the writing of the New Testament as an elaboration on the original meaning of Old Testament texts. That's to say that the original meaning and what New Testament writers say about a text do not contradict. To have New Testament writers contradicting what prophets intended to say is to have, in effect, God contradicting himself, and that's unacceptable in an, in an evangelical context. But I use the word elaboration to say this. New Testament writers were not locked in or bound to the original meaning or only to say the original meaning again and again. Instead, they could elaborate on that original meaning in the light of the coming of Jesus. So New Testament writers often drew out and added considerations to texts that were not known by the original writer and the original audience. 
And as we try to illustrate this in a number of different ways in our situation today, as we try to understand prophets, throughout this course we're going to see the attempt to have the original meaning and the New Testament elaborations coordinated, not looked upon as contradictory, but at the same time not looked upon as identical. We come then to Roman numeral three, understanding prophecy in the modern context. Figure 4 of 10 gives us the basic idea. Let's start with the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. The first thing we want to ask as we move from the Bible to us today is to ask what should the author, Isaiah, and his readers have understood when they heard these words? We'll be talking about this as in terms of being the original meaning, the writer document audience. This is the inspired, normative meaning of the text. Now, it's not exhaustive. That is to say that what Isaiah was thinking, what Ahaz in this case was thinking, and maybe even what his readers were thinking, these, these do not exhaust the significance of the passage, Isaiah 7.14, but they set the pace, they set the trajectory, they set a normative trajectory that must not be violated by any true, and cannot be violated by any true elaboration or application of the text. But then, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 quotes this passage and says that it speaks of Jesus. And so when we look at Matthew 1.23, what we want to ask is this. How does the Bible, or in this case Matthew 1.23, elaborate on the original meaning? We know that biblical elaborations come from God, inspired by God, and they too are normative, and they will not contradict the original meaning. But once again, the original meaning, while it is not exhaustive, is also not exhausted by the biblical elaborations. That is to say that Matthew does not say everything that could legitimately be said about Isaiah 7.14. We do believe that Matthew is not contradicting Isaiah 7.14. He's going beyond perhaps what Isaiah himself understood. But then again, even Matthew is not saying everything that could be said about Isaiah 7.14. But we want to follow the line of biblical elaborations. We want to continue their trace or their trajectory as we try to understand what's happening or how we should make applications to today. So we ask the third question, what proper application should we make in light of the original meaning and biblical elaborations? These then will be legitimate applications. Now they are not inspired, our applications are not necessarily normative, and they certainly are not exhaustive. So there's plenty more to be done, even as we make applications for this course, and as you make applications in your ministry and in your learning. Let's review this process now, step by step. Roman numeral three, letter B, original meaning. In figure 411, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to read a passage from the prophets in terms of the writer's intentions, then the coherence of the document itself, that is smaller and larger units working together, and then to see how these intentions and these units of the text met the audience's needs originally. That is what we're trying to do. Um, that will be the beginning point for every lecture, every investigation that we make into the prophets during this class. We'll be asking first, what did the writer mean as he wrote his book for his audience? 
What was the need of the audience? How does the structure and the, the program of the document reveal the intentions of the author? Then we will move to Roman numeral three, letter C, the biblical elaborations. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the original meaning, as figure 412 tells us, the original meaning, then to the biblical elaborations. We're going to compare these, and we're going to ask these kinds of questions. What kind of elaboration is taking place in the New Testament? Sometimes we'll find out that New Testament elaborations simply clarify the original meaning. That is, they specify things that maybe the prophecy itself did not specify. They may add a few things and explicate a few items. I believe this is what's happening to, Acts, to Isaiah 53 in Acts chapter 8, that Philip is explaining to the Ethiopian eunuch what exactly Isaiah was talking about. He's specifying that it's the Christ he's talking about. He's adding information. He's explicating the matter. But there's another thing that we can all find, verses 11 and 12, compared to Acts 15, where, again, James talks about the extension of the nation of Israel as if it were the coming of Gentiles into the church. And here, what James is doing, from my point of view, is he's elaborating on the meaning, the original meaning of Amos chapter 9, by explaining the effects of intervening historical contingencies. That is to say, James is looking at the church and he's realized the kingdom of God has come in a very surprising way. That it's come in a way that no one really expected. That it came in a very small way and it was growing. And now that Gentiles are being added to the church, they are being, in effect, conquered by God's people and by the king, by the son of David, the great Davidic king, as is talked about in Amos chapter 9. But on the surface of things, if you looked at Amos chapter 9 by itself, verses 11 and 12, you would not have expected to find this kind of fulfillment. But by looking at the New Testament elaboration, we can see the kind of fulfillment that James sees as well. Then Hosea 11.1, 1, comparing that with Matthew 2.15, I think that what, the, what Matthew's doing there, from Egypt did I call my son, is he's applying the original meaning to analogous circumstances. And so what we have to do is we have to ask the question, not only where is, are the passages from the prophets elaborated on by New Testament prophets, by New Testament text, but what kind of elaboration was taking place. And those elaborations will give us guidance and help us understand how to make modern applications. Roman numeral 3D, this is what we must begin to do. We must take the original meaning and the biblical elaborations and bring them over into our day. If you look at figure uh, 413, we can discover here that we have Old Testament prophecy, the original meaning. Many times we find that there are near or proximate historical events that the prophets were talking about. That is, they were talking about prophecies in their, about events in their day. Well, does that mean that once those events were fulfilled, in the days of the prophets that are in the Old Testament days that we can no longer use their texts? Well, I think the answer to that is no. What we have to do is to follow the example of the New Testament and start looking for analogies, that is, looking for things in our lives in the eschatological age that are analogous to those situations that the Old Testament prophets were talking about. But Old Testament prophecies also talked about futuristic restoration prophecies. Now, I don't mean the restoration of Israel in 1948 or anything like that. What I'm talking about now is future from the perspective of the prophets. That is, Isaiah talked about the day when Israel would come back from Babylon 
Amos talked about the day when Judah would be reestablished and that the house of David would reign and that the nations would be conquered. And what we need to do is to look and see how the New Testament gives us clarifications and how it factors in contingencies and how these, the eschatological realities of the New Testament affect the fulfillment of these restoration prophecies. How does this come about? Well, in many respects, we have to recognize that the eschatology of the New Testament provides us with a grid for how to understand the work of prophets in the Old Testament, especially their restoration prophecies. This will become clearer as we go through the various lectures of this course, but let me make it plain as I can here in Figure 413. The New Testament tells us that the Kingdom of God came in three stages, that the end of time comes to us in three stages. The end of time began with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. It continues today as we are seeing it paralleling not just the good things of the kingdom of God but the kingdom of the world continuing on at the same time. And then the great consummation of the kingdom of God will come when Jesus returns. So you have the inauguration, continuation, and consummation of the kingdom in the New Testament age of which we are a part. This age is passing away. The age to come has already come but we're waiting for it to be consummated when Jesus returns. When we look at Old Testament prophecy and ask how does it mean for us today, we have to ask ourselves how do those events that they talked about show us parallels or analogies to things that exist in the inauguration, in the continuation, and in the consummation of the kingdom. And we also have to look at their futuristic restoration prophecies and we have to ask well, these restoration prophecies that the prophets give us, how do they relate to the realities of the inauguration, continuation, and consummation of the kingdom in Christ? As you think about these things, and I realize these principles at this point may seem rather abstract, but we'll put feet on them. We'll give examples and we'll work hard to follow these things through as we go through the course. But think in terms of the New Testament eschatology as sort of the grid for understanding how Old Testament prophets apply to us today. And so as figure 414 tells us, what we must do in effect is look at the original meaning, see how the Bible elaborates on the original meaning, and then make our legitimate applications by following their guidance as we work toward understanding and making sense of Old Testament prophecies. So in this class, we're going to be first trying to understand prophecies in their Old Testament context, then we'll work hard to understanding the New Testament context and the New Testament use of them, and then that will bring us then to the point of being able to make modern sense out of Old Testament prophecies. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.